We began talking about hope in God last week as we came to this text in Luke chapter 2 of Simeon. Um, Luke is giving us these three testimonies of Christ. So we've had the testimony of Joseph and Mary uh, just before this. We've come to and begun the testimony of Simeon and we'll move into seeing the testimony of Anna about the nature and character of Jesus Christ. And we began looking in this text from verse 25 last week and we started looking at the setting of the meeting between Joseph and Mary with Jesus and this man Simeon who we know uh, almost nothing about except what we have in these verses. And what we do know then from these verses is that this man Simeon we see is a believing Jew. He is part of what is often called the remnant. That is that small group of Jews who hadn't been deceived by uh, the the religion and the, the gods of the others, but who had clung firmly and deeply to the promises of God and to the coming Messiah. And he believes in the coming of the Messiah to save both from sin and to deliver them as has been promised so long. Simeon here is a unique man in that he's uniquely informed that he will not die until he sees the coming of the Christ, of the Messiah. And so on this day, he is led by the Spirit of God into the temple for a specific moment. And so we looked into those, those details and those thoughts last week, and we saw in this event, as we see the coming together of these people, what God had in mind here and the hope that Simeon had in mind. It was a hope we see in Simeon that was deeply satisfying. And so that was our, our thought last week, that hope in God is satisfying. To know the wonder of salvation that God gives us, we need to find satisfaction in that God is all. And we've sung songs about that this morning. These are all in all, and all I have is Christ. These songs which express a heart's desire to know and to have Christ as our satisfaction above all else. Because as we live in this life and as we struggle with the, the sin around us and the sin in us as we live for God in this world, we will never kill sin in our life if we don't find God more satisfying than we find the sin. And so we won't know that satisfaction if we don't know that. And so the hope we have in God is about growing in our understanding and satisfaction, our eagerly anticipating his coming and living in that regard. Now we want to turn our attention in our, our verses this morning from the circumstances or the setting of their meeting to the words that Simeon gives. So the second part of the text we have here before us. So let's read that this morning. We're going to read from Luke chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 25 and read through verse 35 this morning. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Let's ask God's blessing on his word before we continue. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray for soft and tender hearts to learn, to grow, to be drawn to you. May your spirit and the freedom within us to work, to guide and to teach today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here, as we come to Simeon's words, we'll look at this last portion from about verse 30 through the end of the verses we just read. As we come here, we, we see Simeon's words to the parents, to Joseph and Mary here. And when he speaks, he speaks here and, and tells us about why Christ came and the effects, the influence of Christ coming on this earth, the importance of what this is. We saw last week that hope in God satisfies, and this morning we're going to continue these, uh, that thought through and seeing that hope in God saves and hope in God separates as we look at the remainder of Simeon's words here. So let's start there at the beginning, that hope in God saves. These verses, as he begins his uh, words to, to Joseph and Mary, it's in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before for the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. First thing we want to notice here is, as we look is that Jesus is your Savior. And that is, when I, when I say that, uh, by saying Jesus is your Savior, I'm emphasizing that he is personal. The personal nature of what is taking place here. This gets to the heart of our hope. So the words that, that Simeon speaks here is getting right to the heart of why it is that he can say, I can now depart in peace. Why is it that he has confidence to say that, to know that, that having seen this, having gone through this, that he can say uh, of himself and in such confidence, I'm ready to go. I know what God has done and I am satisfied in God. And it's not just for Simeon, but this goes to the heart of why we have confidence in eternal life. Why we can say to, to others who ask us, do you know what's going to happen after you don't say, yes, I know I am going to heaven. I know I am going to be with God for eternity. This is Simeon's anticipation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, I think I read last week, says, now hope does not disappoint. God does not disappoint in his hope. He says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There is an important theme, and perhaps as, as I started saying that the personal nature of this, you think, well, I've heard this before. Because there is a, a very important theme that runs through all of these testimonies from the very beginning. From when we've seen Zacharias and, and his words, and, and Elizabeth and her words, and Mary's song, and now to, to Simeon. In all of these words, one thing that has run through all of them is the very deeply personal nature of the coming of Jesus, why he's coming, and how deeply that affected them as individuals while they had their eyes on the great picture. 
They saw the glory of what was coming. They knew what he was coming for in the the grand, glorious idea of what came. But they also saw this very deeply personally. Their hope, their anticipation isn't just about a nation or a kingdom or a great plan or the ultimate purpose of God. That was certainly part of it. And we spoke about that last week, but that wasn't all of it. Their hope came because this was deeply personal for them. It wasn't just about the nation, but it included them as individuals. We think through this and we talk through what's happening here. We're not just talking about theories. Neither are we just looking here at doctrine, saying this is the truth of what God does and this is who Jesus is and we need to know this and understand this in our minds as as truth. Nor is it about here God uh, kind of showing how to get the balance of, ro- of life right. That is, if you do enough right and do enough wrong. God isn't a, a bookkeeper. He, he doesn't try and balance the sheets. It's not about if you do right enough against how much you do wrong and balance it all. It's not about that either. This is the glorious, of pur- you know, the, the glorious purpose of God, the great and grand and glorious purpose of God for his own glory and the care of his people is nothing if it is not personal. It means nothing if it does not affect us personally. John 3.16, that verse we know so well, it says that God, for God so loved the world that he gave his own son. You don't give your own son if you're not personally invested, if this is not personal. Romans chapter 5 And verse 8, we're told this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Deeply personal. John tells us in 1 John 4.19, he says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. From these words, from what we read this morning and what comes out this morning, we, we see and we know that God is speaking through his word to you. This isn't, this isn't a, a whole call. We're sitting here today and God is using his word to speak to us. But one of the other things we see here about this idea that Jesus is your savior is firstly that he is personal. But also Simeon is saying that he sees Jesus as savior. And that's a very important part, right? Because that's what he's going for. My eyes have seen your salvation. He's seeing Jesus as Savior. His joy, his hope is in that, that Jesus is a Savior. This joy-giving, heart-satisfying hope exists in a world which needs saving. We talk about hope, and we talk about the glory of what's ahead of us and having hope, but it is this joy, it is this satisfaction which God gives us, and it exists in the context of a world that needs saving. That's what makes this so exciting, that's what makes this so amazing, that's what fills us with expectation, because of what we know is coming. We spoke about this to some degree on Wednesday when we started Esther. And we looked at the context in which God is working in Esther. God is working in Esther for the good of his people there, to rescue his people out of what is going to be a disaster for them from a a perspective of, of humankind. 
But the work that God does there, as God is moving and doing his thing to, to take care of his people, that work that is done is done in the context of a wicked, unruly, and impetuous king. And the, the reality there is, is what Esther needs to do and what needs to be done in that for God to save is happening in the context of wickedness and immorality. And the same is true in our lives today. The hope that God gives is not, we're not put in some sort of bubble. God doesn't save us and then put us in some kind of bubble that moves us away from everything. But this hope, this expectation, this glory of what is before us lives in us in the context of a wicked and God-defying world. It is a world which needs saving. So the hope that Simeon says, he says, my hope is because I see my Savior. Because he knows the world needs saving. It needs saving. God himself is intervening here. He is intervening in a world that needs saving. Why? I think the story of this uh, of human history shows us that you know in the beginning when God created man and and woman and Adam and Eve in, the, in that garden God personally interacted with them every day he came down and he spoke with Adam and he and he interacted with them and he guided them and what they needed to know and how they needed to follow him and what he expected and he he did that and he did that with mankind not because he was obliged to he did that with mankind because he wanted to. It was his choice to interact with mankind. His salvation, which he brings now in Jesus Christ, is to restore that relationship. To restore that relationship that we have to him to reconcile us is another great New Testament word. Where he is reconciling us or bringing us out of, uh, from under his wrath and bringing us into his family. Reconciling us to himself. This is the great anticipation. This is the great satisfaction of our souls. That we will be with God. That is our hope. That is our anticipation. Jesus said it in John chapter 14. When he's speaking to him and giving comfort to his apostles before he is going to depart. And he says, you know, we, we cling to those words often we think that, that he's pre preparing a mansion or rooms uh, for us in, in heaven. So, but that's not the key. We cling on to say, oh man, I can't wait to get to heaven and see my room. Or, or whatever it is he's preparing for me. It's, it's you know, streets of gold and glory. But what is the key to what he has for us? He said it like this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Why? That where I am, there you will be also. There's the key. That is our hope. That is our anticipation. That where God is, we will be. Revelation, when we're given a picture of eternity, writes this, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the abode, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That is our hope. That is our eager anticipation. That is the end to which God is bringing salvation. Now before we move on to the next thought, let me sermonize a little bit. That means let me take a point here and, and not quite use it in context, but 
make a, a further draw, a little application out of it. It says here when he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon saw Jesus as Savior. He looked on Jesus. He knew what Jesus was there for. He knew what it was about because he'd been shown that. But he saw Jesus as Savior. Throughout history and right now, it is true that many don't, many can't see Jesus as Savior. We see him many other ways. Sin and Satan have blinded us to the truth. We may think good things about Jesus. We may uh, uh, understand that he was, was moral and a good example and that he set us a lot of, uh, of good things to follow and that he was a good man, a prophet even, maybe. And think many good things about Jesus. But if I don't truly see him as Savior, it all means nothing. It doesn't matter how I see Jesus unless I see him as Savior. Nothing will make a difference. The question then is, how do you see Jesus today? Do you see him? Have you seen him as Savior? Do you know, certain, that he died for your sins? You can have your sins forgiven? Or have you grown up or or lived for some time thinking, well, I like Jesus and I like going to church. The idea is good and it it helps me. It helps me raise my family with good uh, uh, morals and and things. So I, I like Jesus. That's good, but that's not going to get you to heaven. It's not going to get you with God. We need to see Jesus as Savior. The second thought I have in, in this regard is not only is Jesus your salvation, but Simeon tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. He says for us in, in these verses, which you have in verse 31, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Do you think it's strange here, as we read through this, do you think it's strange or odd, maybe it strikes you as unusual here, that a God-fearing, Messiah-anticipating Jew would speak firstly of Jesus coming for the Gentiles before he speaks of what he came to do for his own people, for Israel? Now, Isaiah 49 and verse 6, it says, I will, give, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. So this is not a new idea. The idea that the New Testament brings us, that Jesus is a light to the world, that he is there for the Gentiles, is not a new idea. It came from the old, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, he is not only Israel's Messiah, but he is a saviour for the world. For peoples of all places, nations and countries. You think about it, how is it that we speak of hope? Usually when we speak of hope, we have within us or within our minds the idea of light, don't we? Hope, that light at the end of the tunnel. Or you know, we've been in that dark room and the, the door is cracking and we can see the light come through that door finally. Very often that's how, how our hope fills our minds with that idea that hope is a light that shines in darkness, when we've been in darkness and lost in darkness, and we have this hope at the end that there is light. Jesus came into the world, into a dark world, a world that is dark with sin and desperate for hope. And he came into this dark world as a light. Again, in Isaiah, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them... A light 
has shined. The idea of light and the light of God shining for people has been one that God has used all along to display who he is and how he intends to save his people. And he came as a light for you to shine in the darkness of our sin and desperation and hopelessness. And in that light, he gives life. The light not only shines in the darkness, but of course, when it shines in the darkness, it reveals. If Jesus is the light, the Gentiles, the light to the world, he reveals the truth. This is part of what that light expresses for us. You can, you know, if, if you want to see more and understand more about this light dark and the way it works, John loves, seems to love that, that picture of the light and the dark. His gospel is filled with it and, and his uh, epistles, first and second uh, uh, John, are filled with this comparison of, of Jesus as the light coming into the darkness of the world and how he reveals who we are because the, the nature of light is to illuminate, to reveal what's there. See what we have at the top of our steps. When we go up the steps, we rearranged the girls' room the other day and they had a big dollhouse which they don't use anymore. It's in transition. We're slowly getting it so that they'll, you know, we can just get rid of it. So it sits at the top of our stairs. Now, at night, uh, I turn all the lights off and I go up the stairs and I think, I know the house. I can walk up in the darkness. I'll get in bed just fine. Inevitably, every night, I run into that stupid doll's house. Things fall off and fall all over. So they don't know where. Now, if I was smart, right, and, and I'm not a smart man, but if I was smart, I would at least have the hallway light on because I could turn it off when I got right there in front of it. But I don't. Every night, the lights go off, and every night, I run into the dollhouse because I haven't revealed what's there. Light is to reveal for us truth. So that we can find our way to where we need to be. This is what Jesus does for us. He reveals truth. He reveals and illuminates for us the nature of ourselves. That we are by nature sinful. He reveals the wickedness that is hid inside of our own hearts. The truth of God's nature is also revealed. And he shows us that God is holy and righteous and pure. He is opening the, the, and revealing to us all of these truths. His light reveals the way to the truth himself. Because of Jesus, those who believe no longer walk in darkness, Peter says, but in his marvelous light. Not only is Jesus the light of the world, we'll start to put all of this together in, in one thing in just a moment, but not only is Jesus the light of the world, but Simeon also tells us that he is the glory of Israel. So here he moves to that second part here. He is a light to the world. So we see, you know, as, as, we, as I've titled this whole series, the wideness of God's mercy. This is salvation is for all people. But there is a specific part in that as well. This wideness, which we saw in the previous phrase, we now see narrowed into some specific details of God's great work. That he will fulfill his promises. Although he's coming and he's going to bring salvation to those outside of Israel, as he had always intended to do, God hasn't and he will not. Neglect Israel. 
He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't decided on a better way or shifted. He has always promised that he would keep what he said he would do for Israel. And Simeon sees that. He knows that there is a bigger picture, that that the world needs to see Jesus as Savior. But he knows also that God has made promises to Israel and God intends to keep those promises. He intends to deliver Israel in the fullest sense of all that that means and all he has promised. So much of our hope as believers in this day and age, so much of our hope of the future is tied up in God's promises to Israel. God has this magnificent and wonderful way, because he is God, to be able to bring all of these things and fulfill them all together in one glorious, magnificent way. That in the end, God can fulfill all of his promises that he made to Israel, that they will be great that they will have their land, that they will, they will rule and they will reign and they will have everything God promised to them, but at the same time, gather in those sheep from other folds. And we can all, from every nation, tongue, and tribe, praise the God of our salvation. Because he will work his plan. He will work his plan. God knows exactly what he's doing. He always intended to save people from every nation. And he would do that by choosing the most unlikely group of people, the Jews. Choosing them to be a light and the ones that would bring blessing to this world. He never intended them to be the sole recipients of God's blessing and salvation, but they certainly have a special place in his blessing. In the end, God will beautifully bring all of his people together in fulfillment of all his promises. Hope is for all people, Gentile and Jew alike. That brings us to the last of our points here in hope. Firstly, hope satisfying, hope in God saves. And thirdly, hope in God separates. Verse 33, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them. So you think on this. Uh, I, I don't like the title I've given it, but it works. Jesus inspires us. He inspires us firstly in all. He inspires us in all. As we look here, as, as Joseph and Mary have brought Jesus in, and Simeon comes and he speaks these words. The two of them stand and marvel in amazement at what is said of Jesus. They take it in. And they listen. We've seen this happen before already with Mary in in Luke already. Here, they they take it in. Can you imagine what this is like? Because you know, I mean, if you were Joseph and Mary, you've had the angel come visit you and tell you, and you've known the miraculous events that have all gone in place, and you, you have been pondering, and you've been thinking about all God is doing and what is happening with Jesus here. But then you go into the temple, and somebody you have never met, somebody who doesn't know you or know your child comes up, and they seem to know as deeply as you the beauty and the joy of God in this child. And they were moved and they are inspired in awe by God. 
to see somebody else who has a knowledge of what God is doing, who has a deep desire for what God is doing, who has a love for God, and he inspires them in awe of God. But you'll notice that this awe, this marvel happened right here. Right in this moment. Something we are often... uh, uh, tend to do sometimes is because the hope of God and the anticipation of what is ahead us, we look forward and we look for the hope and the glory of God which is ahead and we forget to see the hope that God gives us right now. To stand in awe now. To see the work of God in our lives right now. We forget sometimes to to look at that, to be inspired by God in awe and to see him and his work. Not just to see what God will do, but to see what God is doing. To see what he is doing now. To work towards his great and glorious end. And that happens when, when God moves in us and we're inspired in all. What we see of Simeon also is that he is inspired to bless. He is moved to bless Joseph and Mary. This to recognize God's work. To, to seek God's blessing on their life. To pour out encouragement on them. When you see the work of God in the lives of others, be a blessing. Be an encouragement. This is what Simeon is doing for Joseph and Mary. He sees the work of God in their life and in his own life. But he's looking here at Joseph and Mary and he says, God is doing something wonderful here and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to ask for the blessing and the glory of God, the goodness of God in your life. One of the beauties of being part of God's people is the community in which we are in. The way he draws our hearts together. To bless one another, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, doesn't just have to be about the big things. It can be about the little details, the little blessings, the things that God pours into our life every day. We see the work of God in the lives of people around us. Comfort, encourage, strengthen them in those great and glorious works of God. When we ask for prayer for one another, and say, well, you know what? God has done something good in my life. Say it. So that we can be an encouragement to you as we see the work of God in your life. Now let's turn the corner with Simeon here. Because the next thing we see is that Jesus divides. He divides. This is where the first time in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke takes us in a negative direction. So far, from beginning to this point, it has just been glory on glory on glory, as we have seen the work of God so often. And here, things take a turn. We see something, we see a theme which has not yet arrived in Luke, but which is going to play a very, very important part in the rest of the gospel. Simeon continues here, it says, and it says in verse 34, then Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. 
we've said it, we've looked at it, we've, we've understood it, that hope in God is a powerful, strengthening and comforting thing. It is a, a, a wonderful thing that God gives us for this hope. But what is true about hope in God is this. We see at least the first part here as he speaks to Mary is that hope in God does not separate us from the pain of this world. To have hope in God does not separate us from the pain that is in this world. Hope in God is about the strength and comfort of God in the midst of the pain of this world. That we have hope. That our hearts can be strengthened and comforted in the middle of pain and trial which surrounds us and often in us. See, not too long from now. In fact, as we move through, by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, we're going to start seeing Jesus begin to deliberately separate himself from his family. Where he starts distancing himself from Mary and Joseph. We're going to get to the first part, uh, or, or we, you know, we see the first part of Jesus' ministry when he goes to the, the, the wedding that the wedding Mary says, do whatever he says. And, and Jesus says to her, woman, not Mary, not mother, woman, there is a distancing. She is going to watch as the people of Israel rebuke and mock and torment Jesus. She's going to see all that. Mothers know what it's like to see your children get ridiculed and suffer pain. She is going to stand there at the foot of the cross and see him die. This is what Simeon has in mind. He says, this life, this hope, this glory which is coming is not going to be without pain in this life. But it will be better in the end. So hope in God, and I don't want you to misunderstand me through this, I want you to understand that hope in God is glorious and great and we need to cling to it and be strong in it and be encouraged and strengthened by it as we look at what God is going to do and what he is doing. But understand, hope in God is not going to take away the pain of this world. The trouble that surrounds us and in which we find him, it is there to strengthen us through it, to help us move beyond and through it. One of the things that he also tells us here, and this is part of what is going to cause Mary's heart pain, is because Jesus is going to be divisive. He's going to divide Israel. He's going to divide people. People will mistreat him. They will be offended by him, he says. They will refuse him. He will divide. He says later in Luke chapter 12, Do you suppose, Jesus says, that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. What does he mean? I just say that because the angels saying, yeah, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Why would Jesus then say, do you think I came to give peace? No, I came to divide. Why would he say that? Because Jesus is going to divide because of why he came. He said in John chapter 4, again in that section that last night, he says to them as they ask him questions, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Saying, you want to know what eternal life is. You want to know your way to God. It's me. It's no other way. It's me. Uh, the apostles understood that. In Acts chapter 4, when they're, they're, they're preaching, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other way under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. Him and him only. There is only one way. John chapter 3, one of those uh, passages we, we know so well because John 3.16 rides in there and he's speaking to, to his, uh, Nicodemus that night. If we know verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did he come? He came not to condemn us. We're already condemned. He came to save us from the condemnation. But Jesus goes on in verse 18 there of John 3. and He says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. In our sinfulness, we refuse him. We reject him. We reject Jesus because we don't want to admit that we are sinful. We don't want to admit that we are sinners. We don't want to admit that we need saving. We read at the beginning of our service, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there it says, but we preach Christ to the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks... Gentiles, those outside Jewishness, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. To those who believe he is the power of God to salvation. He lifts us from darkness and death to life eternal. He is the dividing point of all mankind. He is the dividing point of history. He is the dividing point of all. You either believe him for salvation or you reject him for condemnation. He divides. He is a point of offense. I read just, just last night, one man described it like this. He called it the doubly offensive Jesus. So it goes like this. The, Jew, the Jesus of the Gospels is offensive because of how inclusive he is. That is, he includes everybody. He says salvation is good for, for the foulest of sinners and the most righteous of self-righteous. His salvation is good no matter who you are. But the Jesus of the Gospels is offensive because of how inclusive he is. The Jesus of the Gospels is offensive because of how exclusive he is. You have to believe him. No one else. No other way. He is the only way. And that offends. There's got to be always go to heaven, right? As long as you're good, as long as it bounces in, whether it's whoever is up there, it's all got to be good in the end. That's not what God says. In it, he reveals our hearts. And this, that's how he ends this verse, isn't it? He says, because he reveals our hearts. John chapter 3, verse 19, which I read just a, a moment ago and put the wrong verse on. 
there in John 3, 19. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's the part that's offensive. Nobody wants to say, oh, in my heart, I'm evil. I know I am a sinner. I know that I cannot live up to what God says. That's what makes him so divisive, so offensive. He reveals what we are truly like. He makes us confront what is truly in our hearts. You know, if it wasn't for Jesus, we could give it a really good run. We could, we could do a, you know, a reasonable job, not a great job, but a reasonable job of ignoring the truth of what's really inside us. You know, if Jesus didn't come and didn't reveal what he did, we could, we could do, you know, we could at least make a really good attempt of ignoring what we're really like. And we do a pretty good job of that as it is, trying to, to ignore what's really in our heart. But Jesus makes it impossible to ignore that. Because he exposes what's in us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all sinners and Jesus makes that abundantly clear. The problem is, it's because of that wickedness in our heart, we find it offensive, affronting, repulsive even. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, it says this, it says, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, which there is judgment to come. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. The message of Luke so far has been pretty straight. You need Jesus. That's why he has gone through all of these things that we have come so far to this point in the gospel. He's wanting us to know you need Jesus. There is no other way. There is nothing else. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. You're already there. You already live under the wrath of God because of our sin. He came to save us from that condemnation. For us, as, as humans, as, as weak and sinful humans, for us, the hardest part of all this is recognizing the truth of our sin. Coming to grips and, and putting away our pride, which says, no, I'm fine. That's, there's got to be a different way. I know I can do just fine. So today, as we leave these words of Simeon, I want you to genuinely consider the truth that Jesus reveals. The truth of our hearts, the truth of who Jesus is, what he came to do. To look to Jesus to save you from that sin. Which we know, we all know what's in our hearts. We're just doing our best to ignore it. To find true hope in God. True, genuine hope. A hope that satisfies and a hope that saves. 
for the believer, for those who have believed Jesus as Savior, Jesus is our hope. He is our all, our everything. He is our hope. And like the apostles, the time came and Jesus started speaking hard words. And many of those who said they believed started leaving in great numbers. And Jesus turned to them and said, will you go also? They said, where are we going to go? You've got the words of life. It's that attitude we need in our life. God gives our lives He gives us life, and in that we need to respond in lives of obedience to him and find our satisfaction in him. So how do you need to follow Jesus today? What is it, you say, if he is my all, if he is to be my satisfaction, and I'm to find my satisfaction in who he is and what he has done for me, and following him and giving my life for him will be satisfying. What is that that I know right now I need to do? So that he is my satisfaction. We've come here and, and perhaps, you know, I'm a bit more serious today than I have been in some weeks. I want to do something I haven't ever done here before. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us all to close our eyes and to bow our heads for a moment. Not for anything unusual, but just because I want some privacy. The reason I want some privacy is I don't want anybody to feel awkward or unease here. I'm not going to be naming any names or even really saying anything to draw any attention or anything. But what I do know is sometimes when we close the service and something is happening in our heart, I think I need to do something about it. We get distracted and we go and we forget to talk to the people that we need to talk to about the issues we need to talk to. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask us to close our eyes and to bow our heads. So if you'll do that for me. Okay, please, for the good of all, just don't look around. And what I want to do is I want to ask if you, if you can say, look, I, I, I am not saved. I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I've never asked him for forgiveness. Or I don't know. I'm going to ask you just to put your hand up to say, look, will you talk with me about it? I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to make a mention that anybody raised a hand. I just want you to say, look, I need to talk to you about it. If I let you know, can we talk about it sometime? I'll just give a moment here. If you want to say that, you want to say, look, I need to know more about Jesus. Put your hand up, put it right back down. That's all you need to do. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, the truth of Jesus is both glorious and terrifying. It's glorious because of what he does, the hope he brings, the forgiveness we have, the freedom that comes to our hearts, the satisfaction of our hope terrifying at the same time because the results of rejecting Jesus are so catastrophic so horrifying so terrifying so eternal so Lord as a people of God we thank you for your salvation for your rescue 
for bringing us out of darkness and into light. And for those, Lord, who don't yet know you as Saviour, but who who are thinking about it, who, whose eyes have not yet been opened, dear God, I pray for them that you would open the eyes, that you would take the blindness away that Satan and sin have brought, that they can see you as Saviour and know the glory of your salvation. These things I pray in the name of Jesus, our great and glorious Savior. Amen.